Morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody this morning. You look so good, and it's it's good to be here on Easter Sunday. You know, last uh, last Easter we were actually uh, online, and we had to video everything and send it out. It was it was not the best Easter in the world. I mean, it was relaxing. I don't know about you. I like to stay home personally. That's just kind of my my nature. But man, I'm glad to be here with you guys in uh, this morning on Easter to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Are you glad to be here this morning? I don't know if you're like me, but you know, when I was growing up, I heard about the resurrection, and uh, I don't know that it meant too much to me, though. I, I, um, I was telling Andrea this morning, just meditating this week on the crucifixion of Jesus and thinking about Him being raised from the dead and what that means for us, and I feel like every year of my life, as I get a little bit older, a little bit more seasoned, the resurrection means more to me. I don't know if it's because you start to face death more or your your body starts breaking down a little more. You can't do the things that you used to be able to do. You start to realize how fragile life is. You walk with some people, especially this year, through pain. And you start to realize, man, that this life is short. This life is fragile. And without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's really no hope. And if if a man died and nothing happened, then you know what? We just go on. We live our lives. Let us eat and drink and have the best time we can because tomorrow... It's over and it comes to an end, so let's just live it up. But if a man was literally raised from the dead, then that changes everything. And that's what we have to discuss. That's what we have to talk about this morning. Now, I've got a challenge on my hands because I'm finishing a sermon series. And if you're new with us, I'm really glad that you're here. But this is my sixth message in a sermon series called Copy and Shadow. And it's going to make sense to you if you hang out with me just for a minute. But we have been talking about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with that, That's essentially the place that the people of Israel went to worship God. And this was the place where the presence of God dwelt. And what we've done over the past six weeks is we've shown, as the author of Hebrews says, that everything in the tabernacle ultimately points to Jesus. We've shown that in John chapter 1 it says that Jesus came and He tabernacled among us, that He was the living tabernacle. We've shown that just as they would go into the brazen altar and offer up the Lamb of God, that in John 1, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus typified that bronze altar. And then the priest would have moved to the bronze laver. And Jesus typified this because He said, I am that living water. And He gave them that living water. And then finally they would have went into the holy place, the high priest would have. And He would have tended to the table of showbread. And of course Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. And then they would have ministered at the menorah or the candlestick. And Jesus said, you know what? I am that candlestick. I am the light of the world. And then last week we talked about how in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was going to the altar of incense to offer up prayer on our behalf. And today we're going to be going through the curtain, through the veil, into the most holy place. And this is where we're going to end up at as a whole. But see, I want to show you these three pictures right quick. Because you see the high priest, just to give you a little bit, he's in the holy place there once you go into the inner part of the tabernacle. He's ministering at the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. And you see this big veil right before you go into the most holy place. And on the other side of that veil is the Ark of the Covenant. You say, man, what in the world has this got to do with Easter? Just give me a minute. 
Just give me a minute. But once he goes into that veil, he goes through that veil, and once he goes into that veil, he sees this item right here. Now, this was the most important item in Israel's worship. This was the one place where once a year, one man could go in, and in that place, he would offer blood on the top of this thing, which was called the mercy seat between the cherubim, and there, God would meet with him, and God would speak with him once a year. So this is pretty significant, amen? Here's, we're going to start out in Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. Here's what it reads. Verse 10. It says, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony which I will give you, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. I want you to pay attention to that. The two cherubim on each side. And he says, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Pay attention to that. At the two ends of the mercy seat, he says, make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. Now, a cherub, if you don't know, is just an angel. It's another biblical word for an angel. And he says, you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. Now, my first point, and I've already mentioned it, but my first point is that the ark contained the presence of God. See, God always wanted to dwell among His people. God wants to dwell among His people right now. He wants to be with us. And we believe that God is present with us right now. We talk about the presence of God all the time here, and we believe that although God is everywhere, when the people of God meet together, there's a a direct corporate presence of God, and as we worship Him, we believe that His presence manifests in our midst. But for the people of Israel, they knew that God was with them. They knew that God was there, but there was a distance that they felt. A lot, a lot like people do today, I think. They felt a distance from God. It's almost as if people in our world today, they assume, well, you know, maybe I could get closer to God, but uh, he, he dwells in the church, and if I just went to church, but, you know, before I go into the church, I need to get some things together. This was the same way that they felt. They felt like, you know what, we can't go into God's presence. We'll send somebody in on our behalf for us. I have people come to me sometimes as a pastor and say, you know what, Clay, I know God will hear your prayers once you pray for me. I'm telling you something. we got a new covenant, folks, where God can hear your prayers just as well as he hears mine because we're not coming to God based on our own righteousness or our own ability to do things or our own uh, our own goodness we're coming to God based on what Jesus Christ has done for us but see for them that was a difficult concept and so they would only be able to enter in once a year one man could go and the problem was see that there was that veil that separated even this one man from entering in and this veil if you put that up see this this veil had what notice Two cherubim on each side, two angels on each side of the veil. This veil was 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, and four inches thick. It was sitting there significantly to say specifically, look, there is a barrier between your sin and God's holiness. You can't come into God's presence just any old way that you want to because your sin has not yet been dealt with the way that it needs to be dealt with. And that veil was always there as a constant reminder that they were being not just punished and cast outside of God's presence, but they were being protected from God's presence. Because if we had entered in, if they had entered into God's presence with that sin in their life, they were afraid that they were going to die. 
And like I said, many people still have this mentality, especially in our culture, because when you invite somebody to church, I invited many people to church this week. I had some people respond and say, well, I would come, but I don't want to just be that Christmas or Easter Christian. I said, man, I don't care if you're a Christmas or Easter Christian or whatever. I said, just show up. Just come into the presence of God. Just come to be with the people of God, regardless of where you've been. But then other people say, man, I can't come into the house of God. If I come in there, the walls will fall on me. You don't know what I've done. But I'm telling you, that old way has now moved and passed away because of what Jesus has done. You see these two cherubim on the curtain. Now notice in Exodus 25 verse 22, when we talk about moving into the, past the curtain into where the Ark of the Covenant was, Exodus 25 says, And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the Ark of Testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now, you see two cherubim on the veil. You see two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. This is significant, right? So when do you remember in the, in the Old Testament, when was the first mention of there being a cherubim that was keeping people out? In Genesis 3.24, it says this, that after Adam and Eve had sinned against God, the presence of God was there. They were in paradise. God says, look, you can freely eat of all of the trees of the garden. Take whatever you want. It's a lavish life. It's a pleasurable life. It's a good life in my presence. He says, I'm just asking you one thing. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. For In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. They believed the lie of Satan and they ate of it. And immediately sin and pain and sickness and ultimately death entered into the world. And what happens was, is God drives them out of the garden. And it says in Genesis 3.24 that He drove out the man and He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now God was not just casting them out of the garden to punish them, but He was casting them out of the garden to protect them. Because He knew that if they ate of the tree of life in their sinful state, that they would live forever in this sinful state. Now I don't know about you, you, but life sometimes gets weary, doesn't it? I don't know if I could actually imagine living forever in the condition that the world is in. Can you imagine living thousands upon thousands of years in the condition that the world is in? And God is saying, you don't need to eat from this tree of life now because I need to fix things and set things in order before you have eternal life once again. I need a new creation, a creation that is suitable for you to live forever in because I don't know if you, if you believe it or not, but I don't think that the world as it currently is is suitable to live eternally in. I don't think it would be a good idea. So God protects them from going back into this place, but He has a plan all along. Now, here's what I want you to understand. We see just what I told you, that Jesus, our high priest, because we're going to see on the Day of Atonement that the high priest brings the incense, goes behind the veil into the presence of God, and God meets him there as he brings the blood of the sacrifice on the top of that. And Jesus is doing the same thing, just like we said. In the book of John, you see that He's tabernacled. You see that that he is the Lamb of God. You see that He is the living water. He's the table of showbread. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is offering up that altar of incense and now He's going into the holy place as He's in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood, praying on your behalf. He's getting ready to go into the most holy place. And do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross after He had prayed that high priestly prayer? He's hanging on the cross for six hours and all of a sudden He cries out, it is finished. 
In other words, what he's saying is all the work that the high priest had to do every year over and over again to atone for your sins for one year, but never fully put them away all the time, bearing your own shame, bearing the guilt of your sin. He's crying out, you know what? I've went into the holy place and now there's no more work to be done. It is finished. And you remember when he made that statement, the veil, which was four inches thick, was torn from the top to the bottom as if to say there is now free access into the presence of God. You can come not because one man goes in before you and offers up blood. I've offered up the eternal, without spot, without without blemish, precious blood of the Lamb on your behalf that you have free access into the presence of God now. Every single one of you who will believe. He says there's no longer a barrier. Right between those two cherubim, it was split and ripped in two and there was a great earthquake to say. That old system, that old way of doing things is over now. And here's what it says in Hebrews 10 verse 19 through 20. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. How do we come into the presence of God? Why does God meet us here? Because the blood of Jesus has been shed for you on the cross of Calvary. And he says, you don't have to be fearful anymore like the high priest was because used to when the high priest would go into the presence of God, they said they would tie a rope around his foot just in case he dropped dead so they could drag his hind end out of there. Amen. Right? And it, but here's the thing. When you come in here, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what sin has been in your life. When you come into the presence of God, you're not dropping dead in the presence of God anymore because He's paid access for the worst of sinners to come into the presence of God. And here's what He says. Amen. Here's what He says. He says, You have boldness now to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. See, the old way, which is still often taught in churches today, is that you can't come into the presence of God lest you die. The new way is, no matter how sinful you are, come into the presence of God and you will live and He will transform your heart. It's a new and living way. It's not stay away from God because you're broken. It's you're broken, come near to God and He'll change your life. It's a new and it's a living way. And He's saying He consecrated it for us through the veil that is His flesh. So even the Scripture here in Hebrews says what? That that veil that was torn represents the very body of Jesus. He's saying that the body of Jesus was torn for you so that you could have access into the presence of God, so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that God would declare you righteous, so that you could be redeemed, that you could be healed, that you could be delivered, that you could be set free, that you could have a new heart and you could come into the presence of God freely. I know every single one of us, man, we bear a lot of sins in our past, don't we? And some of us, we come in, we grew up in church, and we feel pretty good about ourselves because we did good and we checked off all of our boxes growing up and all that stuff. So we feel a little bit better maybe than the other person next to us. But man, I'm telling you, I'm thankful when I look at my past and I know the sin that I carry and I know the things that are in my heart and I know that there's no way I could enter into the presence of God alone. I've got to go in by the blood of Jesus. Everybody's got to go in by the blood of Jesus and this is what he's saying. Now he goes in and he goes into that Ark of the Covenant. Now in the Ark of the Covenant, I want you to think about this. If you go to this next pick, it was acacia wood overlaid with gold. And in the Ark of the Covenant, you don't see it on the outside. I love this. You don't see it on the outside, but in the Ark of the Covenant, there are three things. You have the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments to give to the people. And this represents God's guidance, God's direction, that God leads His people through His law. You have Aaron's rod that budded. If you see that in the back, back 
background. And what happened was, is whenever they challenged Israel's leadership, they challenged Aaron and Moses. They said, y'all taking too much upon yourselves. You guys aren't real leaders. And God said, call them all up. And whoever's staff buds, that's the one that I've chosen. And Aaron's rod budded. And it represents God's protection. It represents God's leadership. And he said, I want you to put that in there. And then he said, lastly, I want you to take a pot of manna. This is when they were in the wilderness and they had nothing to eat, but God rained manna down out of heaven every single day to feed them. This represented God's provision. He said, I want you to put all three of those things in the Ark of the Covenant because it represented God's faithfulness to us. But see, it didn't just represent God's faithfulness and that He provided, that He directed, and that He protected, but it represented man's sinfulness. Because if you remember, when the Ten Commandments were given, as soon as Moses comes down off the mountain, what does he find? He finds all of the children of Israel half-naked, partying like it's Woodstock at the bottom, and they're sitting there worshiping a golden calf. Because it's just like us when God gives us something to do. Instead, we do the furthest thing from it, don't we? It represents our sinfulness in in spite of God's faithfulness. And Aaron's rod that budded represents our rebellion because God gives us leadership. He puts people in place and he says, I want you to go this way. But we say, no, I ain't doing that. I ain't following that. I ain't going that way. It represents our rebellion. He says, put their sinfulness in there, put their rebellion in there. And then finally, it represents our ungratefulness. And our sinfulness because God provided for them every single day exactly what they needed. And they said, we loathe this worthless bread. And what has God done? He's brought us out here just to let us die in the wilderness. And God says, you know, boy, put that in a reminder in there of their ungratefulness, their rebellion, and their sinfulness. But he says, don't show it out in the open. He said, I want you to cover that with something called the mercy seat. This is the title of my message, the mercy seat. I want you to cover that. I don't want you to put it in the open because I want it. I want on the inside of this, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented Jesus. He said on the inside of it, I want it to bear the fullness of God's faithfulness to the people. But I also want it to to be filled with, with man's sinfulness. Because when Jesus comes, what is he? He is the representation of all of God's faithfulness. But at the same time, he carries the fullness of man's sinfulness. That's amazing. And he says, I want this to represent the person of Jesus and who he is. And I want you to put all of their sinfulness under the mercy seat. And when you come in, the high priest, it says in Leviticus 16 that the high priest is to put the blood of the covenant, right, the blood of the animal on the mercy seat and sprinkle it seven times, very specifically, seven times in Leviticus 16, on the mercy seat, he's supposed to sprinkle it and cover it with the blood, with with, with the atonement or the mercy seat. Now, I want you to understand this. This is pretty amazing. That when Jesus goes to the cross as our high priest, he actually sheds blood how many times on the way to the cross? He sheds his blood seven different times. I want to show you this in Scripture. Put that slide up for me. So, He as the high priest is supposed to offer up as they go through the veil sevenfold sprinkling of blood over the mercy seat to cover the sins of the people. Now Jesus, first the first time that he shed blood was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying right as he's going through the veil, so to speak. His sweat became great drops of blood. They arrested him and took him into Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest's house, and they began to question him. And when he didn't give them what they wanted to hear, they they struck his face with fists and rods and he 
he bled out of his face and out of his mouth. And finally Caiaphas said, you know what? Take that man and beat him and scourge him. And they took a cat of nine tails and whipped his back and his front all over his body, 39 stripes so that his flesh was torn and he was bleeding out in front of them. And then they took him over to another place and the Roman soldiers began to mock him, make fun of him, bow down to him, call him king. And it says in Isaiah 56 that they tore his beard out. And he would have bled from his face at that point. And then finally, they, in that moment, the Roman soldiers took a crown of thorns and pressed it down into his scalp and blood would have come down from his scalp. And then finally, after he carried the cross up Golgotha's hill and he went to Calvary, they took his hands and his feet and they nailed them into the cross. You know, the Bible says that he poured out his soul. He, poured, he emptied out his blood for us. And then lastly, as he's hanging dead on the cross, the seventh sprinkling of the blood was when the soldier took a spear and pierced him in the side and it says outflowed blood and water. And you see that sevenfold sprinkling. What Jesus has done for you and I is he went into the heavenly holy of holies. And he put the blood over the mercy seat and he said, God, now we can fully extend our mercy and our grace to all of humanity because I have made a payment that will wash their sins, not just for a year, but forever. And I have covered their sins once and for all. And matter of fact, I'm going to put them away so that they'll never be remembered again. It's amazing. Eh? Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand clap if you want to. I know it's early. See, you guys are here at the early service. Y'all would have went to the tomb early, wouldn't you? You've been there at like 6 a.m. Be like, is he up yet? <laughs> Y'all that early crowd. I like that. So we see the Ark of the Covenant and how it contained God's presence. But in the New Testament, we see, number two, that the tomb unleashed God's presence. I don't know about you. I don't want to have to go to a box where the presence of God is. I want the presence of God to be with me wherever I go. And the tomb, see, it unleashed God's presence in our lives. And I want to connect what now has happened in the Old Covenant with the Ark of the Covenant to the New Covenant and what happened on Easter Sunday. Now, if you remember the story of what happened on Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene, just like you all, woke up early. And she went down to the tomb before anybody else did. And what she saw was that the stone had been rolled away, but nobody was there. So she runs. She tells Peter and John. She says, Peter and John. She said, the stone is rolled away. They've taken his body. I don't know where they've laid him. So Peter and John take off running. In the book of John, John actually says, I outran Peter. I got there first. He says, and they got there and they looked in and all they saw was Jesus' garments folded up, the napkin folded up, but nobody there. And Peter and John look at it and they say, we don't know where he's at. And, and Mary's all tore up. They don't know where the body's at. Because at this point, they're not thinking that he's actually been raised from the dead. They're struggling with that. They're dealing with that. They're wrestling with his death. They are mourning his death. So Peter and John, you know what they do? They go on back to the house. They say, we don't know what to do, Mary. We're going to go on back to the house. But Mary... See, she had been there the first thing in the morning. And even after they leave, she just sits there. She lingers. She begins to cry. She begins to mourn. Mary's one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. And she begins to weep and she begins to mourn. Here's what it says in, in John 20, verse 11 through 13. It says, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Now, I want you to see what, what, what she sees when she looks into the tomb. And she saw... Two angels, two cherubim, in white, sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know 
where they have laid them. Now, you've got to understand something about Mary before I get into this. This woman, the Bible says, was possessed by seven demons. She lived her life fully under the control and under the power of darkness. She was depressed. She was a broken woman, and Jesus set her free, and Jesus healed her. Now, she experienced something with Jesus that after he died, man, she was broken. She was torn up. She was upset. She was hanging out. Now, she would have been mourning three full days, and she's going there not because she had to, but because because she was truly broken and weeping over, over Jesus Christ, her Savior and Lord. And so she goes to the tomb and she's waiting and she's lingering. But notice this, at this moment when she's in despair, she peers in. And let me read it for you one more time, exactly what she sees in case you didn't catch it in verse 12. She looks in in verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. She looks into the tomb and she sees a recreation of the Holy of Holies. She sees the tomb because Jesus was the Ark of the Covenant. He was the presence of God. He was the blood that was shed seven times on the mercy seat. He was the mercy seat. And at the mercy seat, what they saw, she looked in and she saw two angels that were typifying the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and saying this was the place where it all went down. This is the ultimate mercy seat. And they are there, one at one side, the other at the other side. He, she, he, they were representing the Ark of the Covenant. But here's where the big difference is. Because Jesus had just been laying who was the manifest presence of God, but no longer are the angels keeping her back. They're no longer preventing her from coming into the presence of God. They're preaching to her the presence of God. They're saying here, notice what they said. Y'all all know this, Luke 24, verse 5 and 6. The angels say, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. They're saying, listen, God is no longer in a box, in a tabernacle, in a temple somewhere. God came and manifested himself in the flesh. He was the Ark of the Covenant. You're peering into this tomb that is a representation of that, and now the presence of God is unleashed. He's no longer here. He is risen. They're preaching her the gospel truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that now one has conquered death. They're no longer preventing it. See, the empty tomb means that the work of Jesus Christ, the work of God, is finished. See, the risen Christ, He starts a work in our life in the here and now, doesn't He? See, because Jesus' resurrection doesn't just mean that when I, the best part of it in my mind is that when I die, I get to live again. I think that's the best part. That's just me personally. But I'm glad that I don't have to continue living the way that I always lived in the here and now because Jesus' resurrection doesn't just mean that one day I'm going to die and then I'm going to come back up out of the ground, and I know that I am. That's, but it's not just that. It's the fact that I was once a dead man in my spirit. I was once chained and bound to sin, but Jesus resurrected my dead spirit and gave me new life, and I have new life now that testifies to the fact that one day I'm going to be raised from the dead as well. That I'm no longer, I'm not going to stay in that grave when you bury me, but I'm going to be raised up once again. And in John 20, 14, it says, Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, she sees two angels, but rather than talk to, I don't know about you all, if I see two angels and they're talking to me, I'm going to talk back. I'm be like, boys, while you're here, let me ask you a couple of theological questions. I mean, is it Calvinism or Arminianism? You know, let's discuss the gifts of the Spirit. Like, let's deal with some of the big issues that people are really worried about right now. But she's not worried about any of that. She's not worried about any of that. She doesn't even care that the angels are there. 
She's looking for Jesus. And she turns and she says, where is Jesus? She doesn't even care that the angels are there. And she sees a man and she says to him, right? She didn't know that it was Jesus. And in verse 15, it says that Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She's supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now, this is a preposterous idea, right? That this this woman is actually going to pick up this body. I mean, imagine Megan over here picking Matt up and packing his body out of here. It ain't going to happen, is it? But she's in distress. What's she talking about? She wants to see the body of her Lord. She's weeping. She's mourning. She wants to see it. And she's going through this. But you've got to understand, just like I said, what is Mary going through? A woman that was possessed with seven demons. And I don't know if any of y'all have ever dealt with the demonic. I think in, in, in Jesus' time, it was very commonplace. I think now it's very commonplace too, except we've got a lot more medical definitions for it now. Amen. And so, so, so they, she was demon-possessed, seven demons that just had a hold of her life. And you can imagine the depression, the anguish, maybe what she was going through every single day of her life, the torment, the darkness, probably not even wanting to live. And then one day, I don't know how it happens, but she has an encounter with Jesus and she's completely set free. In a moment of time, her heart is made whole. She was completely, seven represents completion, it represents perfection. You're talking about a woman wholly consumed in darkness. And some of us, maybe we went back, you say, maybe I wasn't wholly consumed, but there was a moment in my life when I was consumed with darkness. And I remember meeting Jesus and everything changed. And for this woman, it meant something. And we know that Mary Magdalene, most likely, she was there in the upper room, kind of behind the 12 disciples in there. We know that she was most likely in there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. We know that Mary Magdalene most likely followed Jesus out of the upper room down to where he was going to be on trial. She was in the crowd watching, probably with John and with, with Jesus' mother Mary. And we know that Mary followed Jesus as he walked up Calvary's hill to Golgotha. We know just like that, that probably she was there to kind of clean up his blood and stuff behind him and she was there weeping as she sees her Lord and Savior going to the cross and we know that she was there at the cross right most likely with John and with his mother Mary as they watch him hanging while the other 11 disciples are hiding for fear and then when they take the body down Joseph of Arimathea takes the body and goes and puts it in a tomb we know that Mary probably went with him to watch that body go into that tomb and watch that stone be sealed and watch the Roman soldiers put a signet on it to say this is never to be opened again and she watched that happen and now she's the first woman back so you got to understand something about Mary she when she started when she had an encounter with Jesus she never left him she never left him she contributed, the Bible says, to his ministry financially. She was totally committed. And the Bible says that she followed him. And there's, there's, there's no wonder why she's not the first person here on Sunday morning, on Easter morning, and she's there. And you remember a lot of people would even say and argue, you remember the story about the woman that comes in and Jesus is sitting at a Simon the Pharisee's house and this woman comes in and she breaks a year's worth of ointment and pours it out on Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her tears and wipes up all of it with her hair. And you see the Pharisee saying, buddy, if he had known, in his mind he's saying, if he would have known what kind of sinner this woman was, because probably Mary was a prostitute or something like that. And he's saying, if he, if he would have known what kind of sinner this woman was, there's no way he'd let that woman wipe his feet. He said, I got something to say to you. You see, when this woman came in, he said, I came into your house, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss. He said, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't offer me anything. But this woman has given me everything she's got. 
And he said, see, she understands something that you don't understand, Simon. He said, she understands that she has been forgiven much, and therefore she loves much. She said, he said, but those who feel like they've just been forgiven a little bit, they just love a little bit. And you know what people do who feel like they've just been forgiven a little bit? They get over their salvation. They get over it. They get saved. Yeah, praise God, you went to a Baptist youth camp somewhere and you said a prayer. Hallelujah. What is Jesus doing in your heart today? Are you over your salvation? Praise God, you got saved when you were a kid, but you've not been committed to the Lord for a long, 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 long time because you got over your salvation. Mary was somebody who never got over her salvation because she remembered where God brought her from. She remembered when she was in darkness, possessed with seven demons, and no way out, no hope for life, outcast by society, wasn't allowed to be around her family, and all of a sudden a man touched her life and changed everything. She said, I'll never get over my salvation. And I don't know about you, but I never want to get over the fact that Jesus saved me. I don't want to just be somebody who tags Jesus on as an as a every other day event or something like that. Or I come to church on, on occasion or something. See, you, a lot of us here this morning, like we have gotten over our salvation. And Jesus this morning is saying, look, you've got to remember where I brought you from. And if you think you've just been forgiven a little, let me expose to you exactly what you are on the inside. Right? And he does that because he loves us. But Mary, she never got over being saved. And she said, and because of that, she's moved with emotion. She said, tell me where the body is. I will pack that body if I got to. And I love what this guy, Donald Barnhouse, said. He said this, she was a 120-pound woman who had been drawn in her soul for three days and who had already made the trip between Jerusalem and the tomb three times. She was offering to carry the inert body of a man who weighed perhaps 160 pounds. She couldn't have done it, but she would have split her heart trying. Now, I know there's some pretty strong women in here, right? Like some of y'all work out. You may be able to pack a 160-pound body when you just weigh 120 pounds. But he's saying, you know what? This is really unfathomable, her saying, I'll pack this body. But she is so moved in her heart. Now, I want you to understand, why is the purpose that Mary now is in a garden? And when she looks at Jesus, I don't know if her eyes are all messed up, like if she's wearing makeup and crying, y'all know how you get. And there's like mascara and stuff all in your eyes, and you can't see because she knows Jesus. But when she looks at him, she doesn't realize it's Jesus. I wonder, how does she not know it's Jesus? I'm not sure, but she supposes that he is what? The gardener. And we go all the way back now to the Garden of Eden where God gives Adam instructions. He says, you and the woman, you're going to cultivate this. You're going to guard it. You're going to make sure nothing gets in this that shouldn't. And you're going to be able to live in my presence in paradise. Right? But they sinned and they were cast out of the garden. Now, the same way that they were cast out of the garden and out of paradise, Jesus actually died outside of the gates. But he died and when he came back into the garden, he created a way for us back to paradise. This is what Jesus does. And so Jesus says, you know what? I've come as the last Adam. I'm a new gardener. And everything that Adam lost and everything that has broken this world and the sin and the pain and the destruction that has entered in, I have come as a new gardener to bring about a new creation. I'm uprooting the weeds that are in your life, Mary. And you've already seen me do it, but I'm telling you, it's just a foretaste of what is ultimately to come. I'm changing everything. I'm going to make all things new. I am the new Adam and I am the new gardener. This is why... It's in a garden that he's raised from the dead because he's saying, I'm starting things over. 
I'm the new Adam. It's not going to be like it's always been anymore. It's a game changer. And I love this because you know that if you read, people say, well, I just don't know if the Bible's real. It's a man's book. I'm just not sure if the Bible's real or anything like that. It's, it's a man's book. It don't, doesn't make much sense. But here's the thing that we got to understand is that you would have never in the first century chosen a woman to be the first witness of anything because in the first century, women could not testify in court. They really pretty much didn't have any rights to education. But yet God in all of His wisdom says, you know what, I'm going to pick a woman to be the first eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But why? Because she's a walking billboard for the glory of God. She demonstrates, she represents the power of Jesus Christ and what He's able to do. She is a walking billboard and she is a trophy of God's grace. And Jesus elevated and respected women more than any other religious leader ever throughout history. So some of y'all women can be real happy about that. Amen. But here, I'm I'm going to finish up. Because the empty tomb also means that we have hope in the face of death. We have hope in the face of death. Luke Ferry, this guy wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. And he basically summarizes 2,000 years of philosophy, basically looking at all the different religions, what the religions think, what the world thinks. And he says this, he says, There's actually nothing like the claims of Christianity. It is the only religion where death has been defeated by love. I love that. He's not even a Christian. He says, The Christian response to mortality for believers, at least, is without question the most effective of all responses. It would seem to be the only version of salvation that enables us not only to transcend the fear of death, but to beat death. It is the new definition of love found at the heart of the new doctrine of salvation, which finally turns out to be stronger than death. He says, you know what, man, of all the philosophies of all the world that you'll ever study, he says, none of them really efficiently ever deal with the issue of death because that's what we're all wondering about. That's what we're all dealing with. That's what we're all wrestling with. And he says, you know what, Christians do it best, but you know what he says in his book? He says, but it's just too good to be true. And I'm telling you right now that it is not too good to be true. The reason we're in here worshiping this morning is because we believe that it is too good and it is too true. Both. And the fact of the matter is, is that folks, man, we've dealt with death this year. Many of us, we've got lost, don't we? We watched this video that we made last year. It's got Lester and Birdie on it. Lester passed away this past year, Jeremy's papa. And you watch that and it moves your heart, man. And it, you think about a life like that. And, and so many people that have dealt with pain, they've dealt with loss this year. But man, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us that glimmer of hope that says this is not the end. We have hope in the face of death because we believe that there's one that's went before us and he has conquered death and defeated death and he has promised us that this is not the end. That if your faith is in Jesus, guess what? You have a resurrection too. And you're going to be raised again once again to eternal life. But here's what I love, and I say this all the time, but resurrection, what it really means is that resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Cancer does not have the last say. Coronavirus does not have the last say. Your doctor's report does not have the last say. Ultimately, death does not have the last say. When somebody dies, we grieve and we mourn. Jesus felt the same way. When his friend Lazarus dies, the Bible says that Jesus wept. He's connected with us. He feels the pain. The Bible says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death was not God's plan. Death is God's enemy. 
And this is why when he comes, he makes it the most important, the central fact of our belief system is in the fact that he died on the cross as payment for our sins. But on the third day, he was rose, raised again from the grave in order to demonstrate that if you believe in me, folks, not only will you be forgiven of sin in this life and have a new heart and a new life here, but one day there's going to be all things made new and you will live eternally. You and I are going to have a body that is glorified, that doesn't get sick, that doesn't catch coronavirus, that don't get sad anymore and weep tears because there's no reason to be sad anymore. Because the garden that we lost, the paradise that we lost, Jesus has paved a way to move back into that. See, death is real, folks, and there's only one real solution. And often you need to think about this. You've got to think about, man, what's going to happen if I die? And there's a lot of different philosophies. But I need you to understand this, that if you people say, well, you know, there's all, all kinds of religions. Clay, how can we know that Christianity is the one? I could sit and talk to you for hours if you ever wanted to have a conversation. But if you look at all of the religious leaders that have existed throughout history, you can take, you can go to their gravesite. You can go see Buddha's remains spread out all over Sri Lanka. They cast his ashes everywhere. They believe he's probably reincarnated as something, right? You can go and to Medina and you can find where Muhammad's remains are, the leader of Islam. You can go where the leader of Mormonism is, right, up in Illinois, and his, his Joseph Smith, you can find his gravesite. All of these religious leaders, you can go and you can find where their remains are. But if you go down to Jerusalem and you look inside the tomb, there ain't nobody there because he is risen. He is busted up out of the grave. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And now the only thing that he's saying is he's saying, I want to meet you. Just like he said in the Ark of the Covenant, I want to meet you. So the blood has been sprinkled over the mercy seat. And if you will come into my presence through faith, guess what? I will meet you right there between the two cherubim. I'll meet you right there. And I'll speak with you. And I'll show you some things. I'll show you who you are, who I've designed you to be. And I'll give you new life. This is what Jesus wants for everybody. He says, I'll meet with you. I'll speak with you. And that's what he wants to do with many of you right now. I want you to just bow your heads with me just for a moment. Jesus is everything. Amen. We boldly proclaim as, as Christian believers that this is, this is who he is. And this is what he's calling us to. And I know many have gone through pain this year. Maybe you went through loss. Maybe you went through a traumatic experience. But right now, I just believe that Jesus is, is calling us to say, you know what? I surrender my life. I, I want to I come back to you, Jesus. And for those of you, you've not given your life to Jesus, but today you want to say, you know what? I want to put my faith in him. I want to have forgiveness of sins. I want to know that when I die, I'm going to be raised again to eternal life. I want you to just raise your hand as an act of, act of faith right now. Let me know. So that's me. I want to, I want to be saved and I want, to, I, want to deal, I want to seal that deal this morning. Anybody? Anybody at all? I see one hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? See another hand? Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Anybody else? 